From New York's Hudson River Valley, I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650 celebrates writers and the spoken word, five minutes and 650 words at a time. And on today's show, we present three stories about time from writers Sarah Bracey White, Anne Cassapini, and David Masello. As the youngest daughter of a strict South Carolina single parent school teacher mother, I was only allowed to go to school, the library, and church. Lately, my brother tells me he sleeps many hours a day. Unlike me, who isn't sleeping well at all because I am constantly worrying that any minute might be my brother's last. When I was young and single, going to gay bars alone felt like a necessary duty, something to endure for the betterment of the self. Stay here, watch another ancient rerun of The Honeymooners, and you're guaranteed to remain single. And on today's Between the Lines segment, writer Catherine Rice discusses the space and the time necessary for her to pursue her craft. Roxanne Gay has written about how, even as a professional writer, most of her writing takes place during stolen pockets of time. This is true for me too. Whenever I am writing, I'm stealing time from someone, whether my employer, my husband, or my child. That's all just ahead on Read 650. Does anyone ever really have enough time? It's a precious resource, and our days and our lives are often shaped and guided by the clock. Annie Dillard wrote, How we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. What we do with this hour and that one is what we are doing. A schedule defends from chaos and whim. It is a net for catching days. Writers, like just about everyone else, often wish we had more time. But we also know that time isn't something we can find, but something we must make. And something we have to make for the things that matter most to us. I'm glad you've made the time to join me and listen to today's show on time. And first up is writer Sarah Bracey White, whose tangle with time and with a dormitory house mother named Mrs. Pendergrast, very nearly cost her her college education. This is Sarah Bracey White, recorded in front of a live audience at City Winery's new flagship location on the west side of Manhattan, reading Against the Clock. In 1964, I was a freshman at Morgan State College in Baltimore. I'd chosen Morgan because a young soldier on a train told me it was a party school. <laughs> I loved it there, he said. You'll love it too. As the youngest daughter of a strict South Carolina single parent school teacher mother, I was only allowed to go to school, the library, and church. I was in 12th grade before my mother allowed me to take company on Sunday evenings. The few boys brave enough to face her cold, unwelcoming stare sat on the sofa beside me and watched TV while she sat in her adjacent bedroom 
watching and listening to our conversation until the clock chimed 9 p.m. <laughs> My Cinderella hour. <laughs> I wanted a college where I'd be free from supervision. Mama's sudden death just before my graduation left me unmoored. Dreams of the freedom college life would afford me were dashed when I discovered that Morgan took seriously its duty to stand in loco parentis for its co-eds. That spring, I pledged the sorority. One evening at the urging of three fellow pledges who lived in my dorm, I broke curfew and went with them to an off-campus frat party. <laughs> I was determined to finally have some fun. The punch was spiked and the music was loud as we danced wildly with Omega frat boys in celebration of our journey into Greekdom. <laughs> I kept checking the Timex watch on my arm, anxious about getting back to Tubman House before 11 p.m. when the house mother, Mrs. Pendergrass, did room check to make sure that all her charges were settled in for the night. When the party broke up about 10.15, we piled into a green Hudson Hornet, driven by one of the frat boys, and sped back to campus. The plan was for us to sneak into Tubman House between the night watchman's hourly rounds. A fellow pledgee who hadn't gone to the party had agreed to open a side door and let us in around 11 p.m. We crouched behind some shrubbery in the middle of the grassy quadrangle that sat between the two women's dorms, waiting for the watchman to punch his time clock and leave the area. Instead, he lit a cigarette <laughs> and sat smoking in the alcove near the side door, the door where we hoped to gain entry. The clock atop Holmes Hall began the first of 11 chimes. The air was chilly and the grass was damp against my face and legs, I began to shiver. If we couldn't get back into the dorm before room check, we'd all be expelled. I could almost hear my dead mother's voice. <laughs> all of this because of a party. Her warnings about the dangers of following the crowd resounded in my head almost as loud as the clock tower's chimes. Time was running out. Through windows on the first floor of Tubman Hall, we could see the silhouette of someone walking back and forth along the hallway. Was it our fellow pledgy? Or was it Mrs. Pendergrass doing room check? Suddenly, a fire alarm went off. <laughs> Within minutes, girls began to stream out of the dorm. Some were fully dressed, others wore coats over their night clothes. 
Amidst the chaos, we ran from our hiding place and joined the bevy of chattering girls. <laughs> when Mrs. Pendergrass finally announced that it was safe to return inside, I made my way upstairs to my room and breathed a sigh of relief that my close call with getting expelled was over. It kept my heart racing long after I undressed and climbed into my cold bed. Years later, when I shared that story with a handsome young man I'd met on the dance floor at a Baltimore discotheque, let's have a drink and talk more before you rush off, he asked. I glanced at my watch. <laughs> it was past midnight. I ordered a pina colada. <laughs> Feeling no urge to hurry home. Sarah Bracey White is a teacher, a Southern storyteller, and the author of the memoir, Primary Lessons. Widely published, Sarah mines her life for poems, essays, stories, and memoirs. She lives with her husband, in Ossining, New York. Up next is writer Anne Cassapini with a story about her brother who, unlike herself, seems to have all the time in the world, which, when you learn why, doesn't seem like such a good thing at all. This is Anne Cassapini on stage at City Winery reading her essay on time entitled Moment to Moment. These days, my brother has time to write six-page letters to me, my sisters, our mother, and our cousins. Every month, every birthday, every holiday. He has time to read any and every book he can find. He even reads the weekend New York Times from the front page to the last. He tells me he does things he's never had time to do before. Sews tears on his khakis and buttons on his shirts. He writes down lyrics to every single song he's ever known. In his spare time, he even writes term papers for young men aiming to complete their high school equivalency. In contrast, I'm always running somewhere, balancing work, parenting, caregiving for my elderly mother. I can't remember the last book or newspaper I've read. My brother says he fills time by walking for hours a day, doing landscaping, working out, or playing the occasional game of chess. He has so much time. He describes staring at the ceiling for hours, watching shadows shift as the sun moves, witnessing spiders weaving their webs, ants creating their homes, birds building their nests. While I keep examining our childhood, desperately looking for some explanation of how my brother got where he is today, he has become skilled at not thinking about the past. I continue to wonder, was his brain damaged when he was working at the bowling alley? <laughs> the time that he reset the pins, 
and our bowling ball fell on his head. Was it a lack of connection to our father who was old enough to be our grandfather? Or could there be mental illness in my family? But my brother doesn't seem to care about cause and effect. His former life as an electronics technician, nature lover, and dog owner is over. Since he has nowhere to go, he now never hurries. Relatives live many hours away. He doesn't expect visitors. There is no one he wants to talk to. Months pass without him saying any more than, yes, sir. No, sir. Present. At the beginning of his time at the Colnbrook prison, he told me he worried constantly. Will I be abused here? Become forever dependent here? Get sick and die here? Now, after five years in, he says he just concentrates on what's in front of him. Instant coffee, a three-inch pencil, a piece of cardboard acting as his desk, his possessions are distilled down to a shared plastic molded chair, a two-inch horsehair mattress, a one-foot by three-foot locker into which he has taped four photographs of our family. He tells me he's trained himself to deal with time in increments of 60 seconds, individual moments he can get through. He gave up struggling against the guards stopped doing hunger strikes to protest the inhumane conditions, abandoned filing forms to fight for his rights. Moment to moment, he strings out his days and weeks and months and years. He says he's now resigned to do his time, unlike me, who struggles to accept the fact that my brother is sentenced to 21 years. Now he seems almost zen-like, or zombie-like, in his words and actions. Unlike me, who is raging against our country's unfair mandatory minimum laws, I keep writing and calling my representatives, hoping to change these laws. My brother insists, you can get through one minute of anything. I don't believe him. How? How does he deal with sharing an 8 by 12 space with two obese strangers? Or spreading his butt cheeks during strip searches? Or punishments of solitary confinement with no windows and only an hour a day out of that cell? Lately, my brother tells me he sleeps many hours a day. Unlike me, who isn't sleeping well at all because I am constantly worrying that any minute might be my brother's last. Anne Cassapini is a yoga and meditation instructor who also loves to write, to sing, and to dance salsa. A repeat contributor to Read 650, her essays have been published in many literary journals. She studies writing with Steve Lewis, and she lives with her family in Tuckahoe, New York. 
You might say that the third story in today's show is about knowing when to hold them and when to fold them. Not an innate skill necessarily, but something gained through lived experience, as you will hear from our next writer, also recorded at City Winery on Pier 57 in New York City. This is David Masello reading Time to Go Home. When I was young and single, going to gay bars alone felt like a necessary duty, something to endure for the betterment of the self. Go now, I'd coach myself late on Saturday nights in my 11th Street tenement, knowing even then, as a 20-something-year-old, that youth was a temporary state. Stay here, watch another ancient rerun of The Honeymooners, and you're guaranteed to remain single. So, despite the allure of a warm bed, the mewing of cats in the courtyard below, and the comfort that came with hearing the black and white era banter between Jackie Gleason and Audrey Meadows, I would dress the role and make my way to the bar of the moment. I might walk east a half hour to Boy Bar on St. Mark's, where ominously one night, overnight, the bartenders had donned elbow length rubber gloves in response to an epidemic that seemed unstoppable, afraid even to put their bare fingers into used glasses. I might go to Wildwood with its flannel-clad urban lumberjacks. Not my aesthetic, but at least I stood out. Uncle Charlie's in unsexy Murray Hill. The Web, with its colonial-era dynamic of younger Asians seeking older Caucasians or the Ninth Circle in the village, where its Dante-esque underworld basement was populated by rent boys, while upstairs the hoi polloi and haughty alike gathered in a hellish limbo. It was there, apocryphally, that Edward Albee found his title, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, scrawled on a restroom wall. Also, where I met virtuoso pianist Vladimir Horowitz, who, Upon my asking if it was really he, said, pinching white gloves from his fingers, I am, indeed. <laughs> Wherever I wound up, I would leave by 1 or 2 a.m., often haunted by the visage of a certain stranger in the crowd I hadn't the courage to approach. I'd ponder on my train ride home the idea of placing one of those I saw you, you saw me ads on the back page of the Village Voice, <laughs> though the urge would fade, like their image by morning. But I was grateful, too, to be heading home alone on the subway with the Sunday Times in my lap, its weight and just-off-the-press warmth sufficient to evoke the presence of another person. I no longer go to gay bars. I'm no longer even in my 50s hardly an asset in such places. And I don't expect to be any more adept at negotiating bar protocol than I was in my 20s. When I look into the few bars that exist along 8th Avenue or Christopher Street, as I pass them, I see faces in the crowd lit by the screens of their phones, an easy ruse for pretending to be engaged with others elsewhere to avoid the live bluntness of rejection now. 
We had no such props, apart from the lighting of a cigarette or fishing in a cocktail glass for the maraschino cherry. <laughs> Yet, I feel a certain nostalgia for the bars I used to visit, because they were places where a young gay man could be surrounded by his peers, be actually shoulder to shoulder with them. Something you realize when you're older is that you were attractive as a young man, though you didn't know so at the time. <laughs> Although the bar house odds of meeting someone never improved for me, there was always the lure of the jackpot. Sex, a new boyfriend, a real new friend. There was also the guarantee of disappointment and hurt, boredom, ego-deflating rejection, smoke-cured hair, the igniting of a randingness seemingly lit by an eternal flame. Whether I felt welcomed in the places or shunned, flirted with or passed by, I had the privilege of age then, membership a given. I learned early on, and it's an enduring lesson, that the secret strategy for going to gay bars or anywhere in life is to know their limitations when it's all right to go inside and socialize, and when it's time to leave and go home. David DeSello is a widely published essayist and poet who began his career as a nonfiction book editor at Simon & Schuster, then went on to hold senior edit positions at many magazines, including Travel and Leisure, Art and Antiques, and Town and Country. He's currently executive editor of Milieu, a magazine about design and architecture. And he lives and writes in New York City. Our executive producer is Richard Kolak. I'm your host and Read 650's founder and executive editor. Our editorial team includes Stephen Lewis, David Masello, Lisa Donati-Mayer, and our newest member, Rhonda Zangwill. Sarah Caldwell is our chief technology officer and troubleshooter. Fran Tuno is our announcer, and our show was produced by the unflappable Jim Russick. And Jim is this week's unsung hero who toils for hours on end over a hot computer, digitally stitching the show together and smoothing out its rough edges, all while deadlines loom. After the break, it's Between the Lines, the part of our show where writers talk about writing. Stay with us. Support for Read 650 comes from City Winery, a fully functioning urban winery offering intimate concerts, food and wine classes, private events, and fine dining. City Winery strives to deliver the highest end combined culinary and cultural experiences to guests passionate about sharing wine, music, and good food. City Winery brings the wine country experience to the city. View the complete event schedule at citywinery.com. Writer Catherine Rice is a new mother in Philadelphia who, despite the necessary demands on her time, also made time to write anyway, something she discovered supplied her with a surprising sense of freedom. This is Catherine Rice reading a page of her own. In 1929, Virginia Woolf famously wrote that in order to write, a woman needed a room of her own. When my son was born in 2019, I did not have such a room. In the cramped, 
Bay Area apartment I shared with my husband and child. There wasn't even a desk or a nook I could claim as mine. I wrote anyway. During the early days of my maternity, there was no time or space for writing, so I wrote while breastfeeding, jotting notes into my phone with one hand while I cradled my son's head with the other. I also wrote during every sliver of free time I could get. While my son napped, while I boiled pasta, or even while I sat on the toilet. And I kept writing even when the pandemic erupted and my husband and I were juggling full-time work with caring for our son whose daycare had closed. I almost always wrote when I should have been doing something else, whether working, cleaning, or paying attention to my child. Roxanne Gay has written about how, even as a professional writer, most of her writing takes place during stolen pockets of time. This is true for me too. Whenever I am writing, I'm stealing time from someone, whether my employer, my husband, or my child. I almost always feel guilty about writing, but I do it anyway. I felt compelled to write in the early days of my motherhood for the same reason that many poets, letter writers, and singer-songwriters have, for centuries, felt compelled to pick up a pen. I was in love. The week my son was born, love rushed in like a tidal wave and pulled me under. The feeling was so overpowering, so primal, it was unlike anything I'd ever experienced. I needed a way to make sense of it all, and writing was my way. We tend to equate love with a warm and fuzzy feeling, but reality is much more complicated. At the center of love, there's always a paradox. The tension between our desire to merge with the object of our affection and the desire to preserve our independence. Eric Erickson identified this tension as one of the major stages of human development, calling it intimacy versus isolation. As a new mother, I've experienced the push and pull between the desire for freedom and the desire for intimacy quite intensely. Motherhood has brought me the most concentrated joy I've ever known, but it has also encroached on my freedom and destabilized my identity. The birth of my son was like a bomb at the center of my life that sent hobbies, friendships, and professional ambitions flying like shrapnel. It's the greatest thing that's ever happened to me, but I'm often left wondering who the me is that remains now that so many pieces of my old life are gone. I've written for many reasons, to document all the lovesick moments I marveled at my son while he slept, to recount the absurdities of being a working mother, and to work through the complicated mess of emotions I feel daily as a parent. But most of all, I write to reclaim a space for myself. For the first eight months of the pandemic, I fielded Zoom calls with one arm and held my son with the other while my husband took video conferences on the other side of the room. There was no space, no freedom, no time I could claim for myself. I didn't have a room of my own, but I did have access to Google Docs, a space where a blinking cursor could meet my own jumbled thoughts. Writing was unexplored territory. It was freedom. And it was mine. 
Catherine Rice is an educator, social worker, and writer living in Philadelphia. When someone talks about reading between the lines, they usually mean they're picking up on some hidden meaning behind or beneath the superficial appearance of something. On this show, Between the Lines is the place we invite writers of all genres to contribute their thoughts on writing and the writing life. We want to hear your perspective on writing, what it means, why you do it, how you do it, and even how you avoid doing it. For details, click the submissions tab on our website, read650.org, where you will also find submission calls for upcoming live shows at City Winery's flagship location on Manhattan's west side. And while you're on the website, why don't you scroll to the bottom of our homepage and share your contact information to receive our semi-weekly newsletter. I'll share information about those upcoming events and submission prompts, but I will never share your email address. And you can unsubscribe at any time with a single click. Please join us, because we'd love to have you. Well, that's all the time we have for today. And for sharing their time and talents with us, I thank writers Sarah Bracey White and Cassapini. David Masello and Catherine Rice. For more Read 650, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening today and for helping to spread the word about the spoken word. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650.